prayer in just a moment. I'll give you a full mo- few moments to gather your thoughts and to pray to the Lord and ask Him to prepare your heart, remove any distractions that there might be, confession, anything that needs to be confessed and be ready to listen to the Lord with a right and a good heart. You might also pray that I would complete everything that I have written down. There's far too much to cover, so pray that I will edit well. Let's take a few moments. I'll give you about a minute to pray. Our Father, what a dear and a blessed time to come together as your people to hear you speak to us through the Word, our Lord, to hear your voice, and we hear that voice by the Spirit who gives us ears and to hear and eyes to see and a heart to respond. We do pray that as we address this important and sensitive subject, knowing that not everything that should be said will be said and not everything that could be said Uh, will be said, but we pray that what we do cover would be for your honor and glory and to help us to understand the beauty and the goodness and your glory uh, in creating us as sexual beings. Help us to, against that, see what the perversion of it is and, and what your gospel holds out to sinners in terms of forgiveness and change and holiness. Pray that you would be with us over this next moment and even as we look at this topic that you would be preparing our hearts to come as your people to your table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning we're going to be considering the topic of sexuality, sin, and the gospel. Sexuality, sin, and the gospel. Now as we look at this, there is going to be somewhat of an emphasis on homosexuality Uh, Because that's the topic that we're forced to deal with because of the movement of our culture. It's being forced upon the church to address it, to address it biblically. And so we will do so this morning, although that will not be the main focus of the message. And that is on purpose. However, again, it is a main issue that's facing our nation and facing us as a church. The current onslaught of the homosexual agenda is merely the end or the fruit of an abandonment of God's design for sexuality and traditional marriage and what the home is designed to be. Long ago, this abandonment took place. This, of course, does not come out of a vacuum. There were seeds of what we are now experiencing planted long before. In our most immediate history, we can point to several big events, many little events in between these, of course. One would be the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Every free love, this free expression of sexuality and pursuit of sexual pleasure without any bonds of authority, no transcendent God revealing to us what righteousness is and what righteousness looks like, a complete rejection of all of that. In 1962, the Supreme Court removed prayer from the public schools. 
moving with this spirit of the age to remove any sense of the presence of God in the public forum. In 1970, there was a no-fault divorce that was officially recognized in California. Eventually, it spread to the other states. This idea that divorce should be made more easy for couples who no longer or who want to break the covenant that they had entered into. In 1973, the Supreme Court gives the right for abortion, a devaluing of life. And again, even another instrument that sex could be had without consequences. Without the consequence of a child that needs to be cared for and raised and nurtured and provided for. You can just go have it ripped out of your body and then everything will be okay. And they're thinking... In 1980, the Supreme Court rules that the Ten Commandments violates the Establishment Clause and eventually they are moved from public buildings. More of a symbolic gesture in many ways, not that they were necessarily heeded anyway, but it is yet another picture of the desire to remove any sense of the consciousness or the presence of God as He's revealed in Scripture from the public forum. In 2013, the Supreme Court strikes down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, making any same-sex marriage made legal by a state that, uh, that it has to be recognized as legal by the federal government. This list could go on and on and on and on, and many points could be added. But the point mainly is this, that this onslaught of the homosexual agenda and other things that we're facing as a church did not come out of a vacuum. It was a constant erosion that led us to where we are. It was a constant erosion of the consciousness of God and of biblical authority on a societal conscience. So when that's removed, guess what? Sin is going to increase and particularly sexual sin. The end of which is a complete abandonment of anything that reflects God's created design and what he defines as holy. It is an abandonment of something so basic to our humanity as sexuality and marriage. Indeed, if there is one thing that marks our fallenness, it is this. It is the desire to have unrestrained sexual freedom with no consequences and at a whim, and nothing to convict us and tell us what is right and wrong. Now, an extreme of this, and even as it affects not the church, but the professors who would profess the name of Christ, came in a 19, or is illustrated by a 1993 article by Reverend Jeffrey Davis entitled, Liberating Gay Theology. Liberating Gay Theology. And one of the most blasphemous expressions of this idea to abandon God or to redefine God so that we might have complete sexual freedom, he writes this, quote, Gay and lesbians are here to transform the church. We need a gay God, a God who would lead us toward a more affirming, harmonious, creative, socially conscious, and spiritually profound life. We need a gay spirit, a spirit which would retain the particularity of individuals in the global village, not to be reviled, but to be cherished. This spirit's goal would not be unity, but a unity in diversity, not the wedding feast of the Lamb, but the festival of Cain and Abel, the archetypal brothers, bringing their first fruits together before God. End quote. Now, the title, Sexuality, Sin, and the Gospel was chosen for a reason. 
There is, as mentioned earlier, the need to address the specific sin of homosexuality. But homosexuality is only one aspect of our fallenness. And it's only one manifestation of sexuality that is outside of God's created design and intention. So we want to set it in the wider context of creation and the fall. Kevin DeYoung, in a book that has been made available to you, makes the same point when he writes this. Quote, the Bible says something about homosexuality, but the Bible is manifestly not a book about homosexuality. In other words, homosexuality is not a main theme of Scripture, but Scripture addresses it as it does all manner of skin, and it addresses it clearly. But even beyond the specific sin of homosexuality, the idea of sexuality in general is a very important theme and matter in all of Scripture. It's a central theme of the creation account, one of them, and it relates to being made in the image of God. It provides a model also of the covenant. So let's begin where God begins in Genesis in establishing for us first a biblical view of sexuality, and that's point number one. A biblical view of sexuality. Genesis 1 through 2 form the opening chapters of God's written word to humanity. In it, God reveals himself as creator of all things. He establishes the very foundation of why things are the way they are and how they are supposed to be. He establishes how he relates to his creatures and how we are to relate to him and how we're to relate to one another. And interestingly, sadly, these first two chapters in Genesis and the last two chapters of Scripture in Revelation are the only ones in which creation and then the new creation are seen without the distortion of sin, without the distortion of sin. So here then, in Genesis 1 and 2, is a glorious, wonderful, and beautiful description of a world in perfect harmony with God and with itself. All things are exactly as God designed them to be, wonderfully reflecting His wisdom and His glory and His goodness to all of us. So let's notice a few points. First, then, that human sexuality is a reflection. It's a part of. It's not all of it, but it is in some way a reflection of God's image in man. Let's look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. This is, of course, the sixth day, the pinnacle of God's creative act is man in his own image. Let us make man in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man, in verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. In verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he says later that it was very good. It was very good. Let's make a few observations from those verses. First is this, as was already mentioned, sexuality is an aspect of being made in God's image. It's an aspect of being made in God's image. Whatever else being made in God's image means, it includes the ideas of relationship and sexuality. He created them male and female. He created them. 
He made his image bearers to be physically different in a way that makes them sexually compatible and able to produce offspring. Right? That's clear enough from the text. In verse 28 of Genesis 1, he blessed them and he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God's creating man, male and female, is essential to humanity's ability to fulfill God's purpose for the earth. You can only feel it, fill it through this distinction between the male and the female. And they are then, by this offspring and together, to subdue the earth and rule over it as God's vice regents. This command is also, as we notice in verse 28, a blessing. It's a blessing. He blessed them, he begins. He blessed them. Children are a creation blessing that can come only from the union of the male and the female. In other words, inherent in God's creation is this reality of human sexuality of male and female, and it is good. It is a gift of God. It is a part of the goodness of God's creation. Now, while the discussion of what the image of God in man is is far beyond the purview of the sermon, it is necessary to make also a few other observations. First, notice this. That male and female equally bear the image of God. As individuals, man bears the image of God and each female bears the image of God. Each of them bears the image of God. In other words, the image of God is not only complete in the union of a man and a woman, but that is, again, an aspect of it. Of course, Jesus is the greatest illustration of this. He was a man, he was unmarried, and yet he was the perfect image of God, reflected perfectly the Father. Notice also that these male and female believers are on equal spiritual footing before him. Equal spirit. Both each of them relates to God as a responsible image bearer to him. Of course, in the gospel, this is made even more clear in Galatians 3.28, when there is neither male nor female in this sense in how each relates to God. Each is on equal footing before God. Notice next that image then includes the capacity to relate to God and one another in love and obedience to fulfill His will. We get this clearly from the fact that they are to rule over God's creation. They are to rule over God's creation. They are to exercise God's rulership over His earth. And notice secondly that male and female then are different expressions of the image of God. Each again fully bearing God's image, but each expressing that image in a unique way. And we'll notice that next. And here's another major point. Sexuality is more than physical, but comprises relationship and roles that also reflect God's image. Now in verses 26 to 28 of Genesis chapter 1, the idea of human sexuality is really limited to the idea of procreation, being fruitful, and ruling over the earth. But the idea of relationship and the idea of covenant comes out in chapter 2. So turn over there quickly with me, beginning in verse 18. In 18. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 then introduces the idea of this relationship, this male and female relationship in the context of relationship and covenant. God created woman to be man's helper for companionship, to be a complement, and to demonstrate covenant commitment. Let's notice first companionship. 
at verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. It is not good for him to be alone. And to make this point clear, he assigns man the task then of naming the animals, which he does down through uh, verse 19 and 20. He names the animal. All of these are paraded before him. And at the end of it, it says that in verse 20, For Adam, there was not found a helper suitable to him. In other words, all of the animal creation, each of them made after their own kind, yet Adam did not have one after his own kind to fit him. There was none of them were suitable for him. They were not suitable to him either physically They were not suitable to him spiritually or emotionally or intellectually or in any other way. They were not suitable. They were inferior. So let's notice next then the complement. He created woman to be a complement. So he says then, again, his purpose for creating woman was to be a helper suitable for Adam in verse 18. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So God created one that would be to him a complement, that would be to him suitable, that would be for the man a helper. That would be for the man one with whom he could have companionship. It is a companionship that has a specific, ordered, and a necessary design. And that's important. It's specific, it's ordered, and it's necessary. Again, we've already mentioned this, but God created woman then to fulfill what man lacked, a helper suitable. Woman was created out of his side, the rib. Notice that the woman was not created out of the ground. He, she was created out of the side of man. Mention this again in a moment. Woman was created out of the side of man again to be opposite him or corresponding to him. That's really the idea in verses 18 and 20 besides, uh, behind the term suitable to him. It means literally as opposite to him. One who would stand opposite of him and be like him and yet different and compatible to him, a complement to him. It's corresponding to him. She needed to complement him physically and she needed to complement him spiritually as one made in the image of God. And that's what made then the woman suitable to the man. And what meant nothing else then could be suitable to the man. Not another man, nor anything from the animal creation. Only the woman could fulfill this role and could fulfill the purpose that God had created her to fulfill, namely to be a suitable helper to him. There is then a created order here. Notice that God created man first. Out of man, he created the woman. There is the idea here then of headship. There is the idea here of a leading relationship. We don't have time to look at these, unfortunately, but Paul makes the same point in 2 Timothy 2.13 that men are to be leaders in the church because it was man who was created first. In 2 Corinthians 11, let me just mention that to you here because it's such an important passage. He says this, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, he says, making the same point but emphasizing the origin of woman, he says this, uh, verse 7, 
For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. In other words, there is in this creation, this unity, this corresponding to reality of the male and the female to be a ordered relationship and one of harmony and one of beauty, one of being a complement to one another. Matthew Henry gives this beautiful description that I just had to put in here. Describing woman being taken out of the side of man, he says that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And that's the beauty of what God created in the woman, specifically the woman. And Adam captures some of this delight of what God brought to him in verse 23. Verse 22 says that after he fashioned the woman, he brought her to man, to Adam. And he says in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is a poem of praise. This is a delight This is an overwhelming exaltation in the goodness of God and what He had created for man. It is praise to God for His wisdom, for the beauty and for the holiness and the goodness of what He had just done. There is one point worth noting here in verse 23. Adam's first response does not focus on her ability to create children, does not focus on her ability to produce offspring, but the sense of wholeness and unity that he has with her. That's what he focuses on. By virtue of her being made fit to him, corresponding to him, being suitable as a companion for him. There's a sense of solidarity, companionship, and even covenant commitment. And this comes out in verse 24. For this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. So this life that God has created... This man and this woman, each image bearers to him, are to reflect God's perfect design for human sexuality within a one flesh relationship, within the covenant of marriage. Let's consider this briefly. This one flesh relationship then is impossible without a male and a female distinction. It's impossible. It's impossible to fulfill this without a male and a female distinction. At its very basic, most rudimentary level, this one flesh, though it includes more, we'll mention, has the idea of sexual unity. It has the idea of sexual oneness. When a male and a female come together, there is a oneness that is experienced physically that can only be experienced with two different genders, with the male and the female. Paul confirms this idea in 1 Corinthians, or this truth, in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, when he gives this familiar statement, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. It does include this idea then of unity, of physical unity. And it's something that is to be reserved for only a husband and a wife. The idea of joined in 1 Corinthians 6.16 and the idea of cling to are the same basic idea. It's the same term in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, that's used 
to translate joined to, the Hebrew term that Paul uses to say joined uh, to in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Two males or two females do not correspond to one another by design to make this possible. It is that which is designed by God as a male and a female. Note secondly about it in verse 24. It involves commitment that encompasses a shared life. The man, because of this new relationship, is to leave his family his mother and his father, and to begin a new life with his wife. He says in Genesis 2, 24, that he is to leave mother and father, and he is to be joined to his wife or cleave to, and they shall become one flesh. So it also involves the idea of commitment, the idea of covenant. This is made clear in Malachi 2.14. When speaking of a husband and a wife, he uses this language. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Jesus affirms this same point in Matthew 19.5-7 is that this covenant of marriage is a permanent bond. It is a permanent union. It is something that was never designed to be broken by God and it was designed to be experienced only, indeed could be experienced only, between a man and a woman. He repeats verse 24 and verse 5 of Matthew 19 and then he says, So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God has joined them together. It is a union. It is a covenant that is designed and implemented by God. Let's notice quickly then another point. That human sexuality in marriage then reflects God's covenant relationship with his people. And this is important for two reasons. First, it shows that God's purpose for human sexuality, however, is far more than the simple act of having sex. It means far more than that. And the imagery that God uses throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant requires a male and a female relationship. In other words, it loses all meaning in a same-gender sexual relationship or sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage. Let's illustrate this very quickly. And I'm only going to mention these passages. So I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to mention four passages. The first is Ezekiel 16.8. Ezekiel 16.8. God says this, and most likely here he's referring to the beginning of his covenant with the nation of Israel, the Mosaic covenant, uh, I should say, at Sinai. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. In other words, he puts his relationship with his people in the language of a marriage covenant or in the language of covenant. And that's why Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness is addressed in the language of sexual lewdness and unfaithfulness and adultery. Hosea 2, 14 through 23 uses the same imagery. Again, let me just mention the text. He says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord. And now here he's looking forward to the new covenant. And again, putting it into the language of husband and wife, of betrothal betrothal and marriage he says this it will come about in that day declares the lord that you will call me ishi my husband ishi my husband and i will betroth you to me forever he uses the picture of marriage of course the greatest example of this is ephesians 5 22 through 23 when christ comes who was the ultimate end of the redemption that was looked forward to he come and completed what was required for the salvation of his people, dying and rising again at the cross, 
I mean, dying at the cross and rising again in the resurrection. And then calling to himself a people whom he would enter into the most intimate union and relationship with. And he puts it again into the language of a marriage relationship. Verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Verse 31 he explains that a little bit more. He says in verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage has as its ultimate picture Christ and the church. The union that God has with His people through the Son in the New Covenant. One more text. In Revelation 19, he does the same. This ultimately is going to be pictured in this union of Christ and his people in the last days. He says, Let us rejoice in Revelation 19:7 and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and, as a bride, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says in verse 21, Two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And this really then is the ultimate end of the picture that God establishes in Genesis chapter 2. Here's the point. Marriage pictures God's covenant relationship with His people and He grounds it in the establishment of human sexuality and the institution of a marriage between a male and a female. It would be impossible for this analogy to have any weight at all if there were two males or if there were two females. You could, it would require two Christ and two heads and two submission, submitting people, which is an abominable and an absurd thought in light of the imagery. Now let me make four affirmations then here about biblical sexuality. Four affirmations. First is this. Male and female both bear the image of God equally, yet by design they express it differently and in ways that are specifically related to being male and female. Does that make sense? They are designed, male and female, in the image of God equally, yet by design express it differently in ways that are specifically related to being male and female. In other words, a male only can express God's image as a male because he's male. A female can express God's image as a female because she's female. And this is expressed in a beautiful picture of God's covenant when they come together in the union of marriage. With that in mind, listen to this. One is written, Remarkably, these roles are abundantly evidenced in same-sex relationships. One takes the more dominant role of the male, and one takes the role of the female. That, of course, forces one of the partners to violate his or her God-ordained role. In a gay relationship, one of the two partners must play the submissive role, a role not intended for him by God. In a lesbian relationship, one of the two women must take the more dominant leadership role, a role not intended for her by God. From the role relationship perspective, homosexual partners violate God's intended design for marriage. End quote. God has designed that to be between a man and a woman, and it is impossible for that to be fulfilled properly in any other way. 
Second affirmation is this. While sexuality involves more than the sexual act, that act is basic to sexual distinctions and is necessary to fulfill God's creation mandate to multiply and to fill the earth. Children only come between the union of a male and a female. Now that is patently obvious. Let me suggest to you that the fact that homosexual couples want marriage and want children is in of itself a testimony against the perversion of that union. In other words, the desire for children and a lifelong relationship is good, and yet they want it in a context that cannot produce one of the very things that God designed it for, which is to produce children. To produce children. It is because it is an unrighteous union. Third affirmation. The sexual act is a good gift of God within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Within this covenant marked by loving commitment, sex and sexuality is good, it is beautiful, it is holy, and it glorifies God. It glorifies God. The Song of Solomon is a testimony to that. And I would note here that we as a church and parents to our children, I think, need to communicate that to our children and model it in our homes. It's so easy to only talk about sex and sexuality in the negative because we're inundated with all kinds of sinful expressions of it. However, we must first teach and understand ourselves in order to rightly fulfill it. The beauty and the goodness and the holiness of God's design in sexual relationships within the marriage of a husband and wife who are committed to one another in love and faithfulness. In other words, it's good, it's beautiful, it's right, it's to be celebrated, it's holy, it's an expression of God's goodness to us. And we need to understand that so we can better identify perversions. Now let's note the second point then. That's biblical sexuality. Sexuality in light of the fall. And I really want to get to the end and not make this two parts. So I might go rather quickly here. Genesis 2 then is God's ideal for his creation in human sexuality. Beautifully and wonderfully portrayed. And I think no more so than in Genesis 2.25 when he says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This speaks of the absolute purity of their motives and the pure delight that they had in one another. There was no greedy, no illicit, no proud, no selfish desires in their heart that would make them ashamed or cause them to fear anything but those same emotions from their spouse toward the other. In other words, from Adam, uh, from Eve or Eve from Adam. There was a complete delight and appreciation in the other. There was a complete purity and a complete trust that each had in one another. And this immediately changed after they sinned. Immediately. Interestingly, one of the first displays of their fallen condition, despised, despite hiding from God, was an acute awareness of their what? Their nakedness. They were acutely aware all of a sudden that they had no clothes and they were naked. So they hide not only from God, but they hid from each other. No longer did they have eyes of purity, but they saw each other with eyes of shame and a sense of dirtiness, a sense of what was unholy and not right before God. Verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then, hiding from God, God calls out to them. And when he answers, uh, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I hid myself. And he said, God did, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, God knew you're hiding yourself from me because you're ashamed of your nakedness. In your nakedness, you realize your exposure and now you have something in that exposure that you want to hide that you did not have before. And so that is the condition of sexuality that we see largely in humanity from that point on. Now to consider this more closely, let me just mention two other, two striking Old Testament passages. Two striking Old Testament passages. The first is Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. Obviously, we're not going to go through that whole passage. You are familiar with it. Genesis 19 is the account of God's destruction of the cities Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah stand as the epitome of sexual excess and rebellion to God and with an emphasis on their homosexuality. They also stand as a beacon of God's total and absolute judgment on such wickedness. You know the story, two angels that had previously come to visit Abraham go down to Sodom where Lot is living to investigate the wickedness of the cities. As they prepared to sleep out in the open, Lot comes and finds them, invites them into his home and for good reason. And no sooner are they in his home and the sun goes down that the men of Sodom surround Lot's house and demand to have sexual relations with the two men. This is homosexual gang rape. That's what they want to do. Rape them even if it meant doing it until death. That's verse 5. They say, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And after a pathetic attempt by Lot to give his two daughters in place of the two men, they press on even after being struck blind by the two angels. And verse 11 says, they struck the men who were at the doorway with blindness, small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Even having, after, after having received this very real experience of God's judgment, a shame. They weren't blind before. Now they were blind. They did not give up on their desire to satisfy their sexual lust with these two men. And so the next morning, of course, the angels take Lot and his wife out of the city before God destroys it. Verse 24 says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Inner Testament, and even in the New Testament, God's judgment of, under, of Sodom was understood and Gomorrah as an example of complete devastation and, against, and an example of complete devastation against the people who were totally given over to their sexual indulgements and pleasure. One intertestamental writing says this in the testimony of Benjamin. From the words of Enoch the righteous, I tell you that you will be sexual promiscuous, sexually promiscuous like the promiscuity of the Sodomites and will perish with few exceptions. Jude 7 says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, that is homosexual behavior, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. One other example is in Leviticus 18. Leviticus chapter 18. God is giving instructions to his people what holiness looks like. And already in these instructions, he's telling us, don't do this because this is what the nations do. This is what everybody else who does not know God, who has not have him reveal his righteousness to them, this is what they do. We could largely say then, at least for the ancient Near East, that these were fairly common practices. That's why God has to tell them, 
don't do these things. You're different. And here in Leviticus 18, Moses lists the sexual sins that marked the surrounding nations and were to be avoided by God's people. The list is comprehensive and the list is repulsive. It is essentially in Leviticus 18 and then again in Leviticus 20 an index of all the different types of sexual sin that were committed by the nations and his people. He addresses first sex with relatives. He forbids sex with a mother, a sister or a half-sister, sex with grandchildren in verse 10, sex with an aunt, Sex with a daughter-in-law, sex with a sister-in-law, sex with a stepdaughter or step-granddaughter, and there particularly in the combination of marrying them both. He forbids marrying two sisters, having relation with a woman during her missional cycle, or having relations with another man's wife in verse 20. And then he mentions child sacrifice in 21, and in verse 22, he forbids homosexuality, which is, the only, which is attended with this unique marker, it is an abomination. You shall not lie with a male as with one lies with a female. It is an abomination. It is against nature. And in verse 23, he mentions sex with animals. That's the gamut, folks. That's everything. Basically, sex expressed with everything that comes to the imagination of man. He forbids it. He says those things are wrong. They are unrighteous. They are unholy. Interestingly, he mentions repeatedly throughout this chapter that it is to uncover her nakedness. In other words, to have sex with a married woman, anyone, whether she's your aunt, sister, or whatever, is to uncover her nakedness. And this harkens us back to the Genesis account, the one flesh account. To have uncover the nakedness of a woman who is married is also to uncover the nakedness of her husband because they are one flesh. And that idea, nakedness, from Genesis 3 on, has the idea it's always associated with shame. What is wrong? What is lewd? Now the application is this. Once there is an abandonment or erosion of the sense of God and His design for marriage and proper sexual relationship, it opens the doors to all kinds of other sins. The root of sin is not not simply lust, but it is pride, arrogance, greediness, and covetousness. I want to mention this verse to you. Uh, Ezekiel 16.49. And we're going to start bringing this home. Ezekiel 16.49. We don't need to give more examples of the perversion of it. But listen to Ezekiel's comment. Ezekiel 49. Referring to God's rebellious people, addressing them anyway. He says in verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and the needy. In other words, the sin went deeper than just lust. Now amazingly, advocates of the homosexual agenda use this to argue that God's anger against these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, was not because of their homosexuality, but because of their lack of hospitality. Their lack of hospitality, which is to completely miss the point. The pride and the social injustice, yes, were a part of their their wickedness, their arrogance, and their pride. And yet this idea of abomination that he says in verse 50, they were haughty and committed abominations before me directly ties us into the language and the condition of sexual perversion in Leviticus 18 and 2013 where the same term is used specifically in relation to homosexual sin. So it is true that homosexuality and all sexual sin is the fruit of deeper heart issues. 
Rosaria Butterfield brings this out well in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She says this, discussing Ezekiel 16.49. Quote, God tells us what is at the root of homosexuality and what the progression of sin is. We read here that the root of homosexuality is also the root of a myriad of other sins. First we find pride. Pride puffs one up with a false sense of independence. Proud people always feel that they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want to and when they want to. She then goes on to list the other sins there. Wealth, entertainment driven focus, lack of mercy, lack of modesty. And then she notes this. We like to think that sin is contained by categories of logic or psychology. It's not. So why do we assume that sexual sin has sexual or effectual organs, origins? That is because we have too narrow a focus about sexuality's purview. Sexuality isn't about what we do in bed. Sexuality encompasses a whole range of needs, demands, and desires. Sexuality is more a symptom of our life's condition than a cause, more a consequence than an origin. End quote. In other words, it flows out of deeper heart issues. At the base of homosexuality or any sexual sin or any sin in general is heart desires that are in rebellion to God and a heart that wants to live independently from God and His holiness and His righteous standards. It's a matter of misplaced worship. And this is precisely the point that Paul made in Romans chapter 1. Flip over there for a bit. and this, We're going to end around this passage. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is addressing... The sinfulness of man and the justness of God's judgment on man's sin. He begins this in Romans 1, 18 through verses 32. And he identifies the sinfulness of man in this way in verse 18. They suppress the truth, they hold down the truth that should be known about God in unrighteousness. And then he makes mention of three exchanges and there is a progression in each of these. He mentions first in verse 23 that they exchanged God's glory for idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and so forth. And so God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. Verse 24. They also exchanged, secondly, the truth of God for a lie. Verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Again, the issue here is false worship. They exchanged the worship of God for the worship of something else. And this led to the third exchange, manifest in the sin of homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now let me ask you, because this is mentioned first, does it mean that homosexuality is a worse sin than others? Does it mean that it's a worse sin than others? I would answer, ultimately no. But it does represent the end of a progression of rebellion against God. It does represent the end of a progression of rebellion against God. The uniqueness of it is this, that it is against nature. It is against nature. While this might be shocking news to our culture, human anatomy is not an accident, nor is it inconsequential. It serves a purpose at a most fundamental level to our humanity. That was the point of Genesis 1. Human sexuality is basic to our humanity. To not see that is to be 
blinded. Indeed, human sexuality involves more than the simple act of sex between a man and woman, but the fact that sex between a man and a woman is the only kind that rightly corresponds to each other's bodies physically and is the only kind of sexual union that can produce offspring necessary to human existence is so fundamental that there is, in the language of Paul, no excuse for missing it. That's the point. It it marks a progression When you can't understand something as basic as gender and human sexuality and how the human race procreates, that is an example of being given over as a culture. As terrible, damaging, and damning as other sexual sin is, to abandon something so fundamental as the male and the female sexual identity marks a point of blindness that is described by God as being given over. And it's ultimately going then to also come into a context where other sin flourishes. Right? He says that in verses 30 through, well, 28 to the end. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, so on and so forth. He listed on and on. In verse 32, he says, Also, they give hearty approval to those who practice those things. So let's then ask this question How is the church to respond? And let's notice lastly this sexuality in light of the church's proclamation of the gospel. What are we to do then in a culture that is so given over and so unrestrained in the expression of sexual perversion and depravity? How is the church to respond? Should we put on our armor and get ready to fight? Should we get on the loudspeaker to expose homosexuality as an abomination on every street corner and all sexual sin? Should we proclaim only God's judgment? Should we pour all of our resources and energy into political and social organizations? Is that what the church should do? Well, let me suggest this, that there is a place for these things as Christian citizens of a nation. We are citizens of a nation and we are Christians and we should function as such. However, the church's priority is the gospel. Her primary energy should not be spent on political, social, or cultural agendas, but the proclamation of Christ crucified for sinners and returning to judge the earth. Now with that, let me give three basic applications then for us. Three basic applications. First is this. The church then needs to respond by calling sin, sin. The church needs to respond by calling sin, sin. The gospel begins with the holiness, the perfections, and the justice of God. It begins with God as creator who has alone established what is right and what righteousness is and how we are to relate to him and how we are to relate to one another. God alone establishes what righteous sexual relationships are and what unrighteous sexual relationships are. God does that. He has the sole right and authority to do so. And... He will, in addition to this, judge the world for all unrighteous expressions of it. Paul says that on account of these things, in Colossians chapter 3, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, amounts to idolatry, verse 6, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You can read that in Revelation 21, 22. Judgment. Who's not going to be there? Those who engage in practices that are unrighteous without repentance. And so God will judge all the unrighteousness of men, not just sexual sin, not just homosexual sin, all sin. And the church needs to 
be fearless in proclaiming that. Sadly, many in the church are failing to identify sin, not just sexual sin but and homosexuality, but sin in general, but particularly those sins. Why? There's a variety of reasons. One, because there's a general abandonment of biblical authority. There's a fear of man and the cost it will bring. And let me tell you, beloved, it will bring across increasingly as we speak these truths. It is as well as a love of acceptance, a love of acceptance and being thought well of by others. Or it is that they themselves who refuse who name the name of Christ and refuse to address it, that they themselves have never really experienced the reality of the gospel in their own life. And so they can't understand it as they should. But when the church fails to call sin, sin, we become complicit with it and we facilitate Satan's deception and the destruction that comes upon the unrepentant. We have a moral responsibility and a duty to speak the truth. Probably one of the most common errors is that God is love and accepts all, so we should accept people how they are. Of course, love, Paul defines, or Paul defines love in this way. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but in truth. But in truth. And truth speaks the truth about sin because sin is destructive. It's damning to the soul. Sin invites the judgment of God. And love identifies this to point to the cross. So the second response then is this. The church must proclaim the transforming grace of Christ, crucified, risen, and returning, and the promised reality of the Holy Spirit. The great message of the gospel is that Christ died for sinners. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For those who are in Christ there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1 But that is precisely where the church needs clarity. Because the gospel is not only about justification being counted righteous, it is about transformation and becoming like Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in the body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen to this wonderful passage, you know it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. Listen to how many of these sins are sexual sins. Fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals nor thieves nor covetousness nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's important for us to be clear that the goal of the gospel is transformation to be like Christ. And in relation to homosexuality, the goal of the gospel is not to make someone heterosexual. We have to understand that. The goal is not to make homosexuals heterosexual. The goal is to tell them the gospel that they might be forgiven and transformed to the image of Christ, which is something that's true for all of us. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that applies to a homosexual as well as to anybody else in the church. That's the goal of all of us. Third, and let me end here. The church needs to speak with intelligence and clarity as well as humility and gentleness. Needs to speak with intelligence and clarity as well as humility and gentleness. There are times when we need to speak boldly, but the overall demeanor and message of the gospel ought to be with humility and gentleness. And humility comes when we are dealing with our own sins, which is always driving us to our own need for the grace of the cross. And then we extend that grace that we've experienced to others as we call them to genuine, repentant faith. After driving through a town with Bible verses on the placards inside of the buildings, 
This is after she was converted and she was going to, she left her teaching post at a secular university and was going to teach at a Christian college. She goes into this largely Christian town and she's seeing all of these Bible signs on the side of buildings and so forth and in people's lawns. And she says this, Rosaria Butterfield wonders how welcome she would be in one of those homes as a lesbian sinner. She says this, perhaps I or one of my drag queen friends would be welcome to have a cup of coffee at one of these Bible-loving houses, resting our cups between sips on vinyl tablecloths in country kitchens. Perhaps we would be talked with as people made in God's image, but perhaps not. These placards made me wonder, would I be welcome because I'm visibly saved? Which is the greater of God's gifts, being made in God's image or being saved, or both? Are we to rank order these? Are we to treat the visibly saved with greater honor than all of humanity, made as it is in God's image? Do these Bible verses that sit on placards take up the same cultural space as the rainbow flag that once resided on my flagpole? Are these welcome signs or are they signs that read for insiders only? End quote. So I would suggest this, that NBC... Newtown Bible Church, as every church, needs to be a place where people feel they will be received for who they are, not to stay that way, but that they can be honest about their questions and their struggle and find help to grow and know the Lord Jesus Christ and how to be sanctified in His image. Referring to how the church treats other Christians struggling with same-sex attraction, I want to end with this last quote from Denny Burke. In his article, Is Homosexual Orientation Sinful? And he asks these following questions that we need to ask ourselves individually and as a church. And as I read them, and then uh, pray for communion, think this to yourself. Does this describe us as a church, and does this describe you as an individual? He says this, Is your church the kind of place that would be safe for these dear brothers and sisters, i.e. Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction, to come forward to find friendship and community? Is your home the kind of place that would be safe for these dear brothers and sisters to come forward to find friendship and community? Does your church and your home have arms wide open to them to come alongside them, to receive them and to strengthen them? Jesus said that the world would know us by our love for one another. One of the ways that we show love for one another is by bearing one another's burdens. Can you bear this burden with your brothers and sisters who are in this fight? Are you ready to offer help and encouragement to these saints for whom Christ died? If not, then something is deeply amiss, for Jesus has loved us to the uttermost, and he calls us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And This is such a big topic. We've only barely introduced it uh, this morning. But it is one that we need to constantly be thinking through biblically and have biblical answers so that we can speak clearly and truthfully when your word is wrongly represented, when the gospel is wrongly represented, but also so that we can speak with compassion, so that we can speak with sincerity, so that we can be a place where those who are truly struggling and that your spirit might even this day be drawing, a place where they could come and know that they will receive not only the truth of Christ, but the grace of Christ and how we deal with each individual. So help us to be that, and not only with homosexual sin or any sexual sin, but with all sin, that we would be a place where we are encouraging one another all the more, that we are bearing one another's burdens, all that we might, in our constant pursuit to be conformed to your image, be helping and aiding one another to your glory. 
And Father, if you would bring any among our midst who are struggling with this particular sin, we would pray that we would see the transforming grace, your transforming grace in them. And Father, if there are any who are struggling with any sin, be it this one or any sin, that they have not yet repented of, will you now, as we come before your table, convict them and draw them near to Christ? If there are some here who are false believers, who are believers in name only and not in truth, I pray that you would reveal that and that today would be the day that they would be believers in truth, pursuing you. And for all of us, we come with a heart of worship, reminding ourselves in this institution or this ordinance that you've given what our salvation cost, but yet the reality that it was accomplished for us. And we await together full realization in the kingdom that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.